Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. In an essay entitled, What About the Fabrica of Vesalius? William Ivins Jr. provocatively concluded, I believe that until it becomes possible to know just what contributions were in fact made by Vesalius in the text and just how important they were, that the fabrica should be looked upon as essentially a set of anatomical drawings and that it is their draftsman who should be looked upon as the real hero of both the fabrica and the epitome. Given that Ivins's essay was written to accompany the printing of the rediscovered original woodblocks of the fabrica, and um, I just saw 30 minutes ago upstairs that um, the library now has acquired the um, reprinted images of the Iconus Anatomicae. Again, a beautiful, pristine copy. It is really worth having a look. Okay. Um, but given this background, then it is perhaps not surprising that the curator of prints at the Metropolitan Museum of Arts would be so partial to an artist. Indeed, in some respects, he was right. What makes Vesalius's book so famous is precisely its woodcuts. And it is impossible for anybody to have become a historian of medicine, or perhaps even a physician, without having come across at least an image or two from the fabrica. But I think it unfair to call the fabrica a set of anatomical drawings when they occupy only a fraction of the book. Assessments of the fabrica have moved on since Ivins's time and art historians such as Martin Kemp have emphasised instead the close collaboration between the draftsmen and Vesalius. What I'd like to pursue today is how the images can be understood as uh, working together with the text in the book in the service of anatomical knowledge. So let me start with the book itself. Published in 1543 in Basel by the printer Johannes Operinus and entitled Seven Books on the Fabric of the Human Body. It is a book of over 710 large folio pages. It was accompanied by an even larger but shorter piece called the Epitome of the Books on the Fabric of the Body, Human Body, containing 27 pages of large anatomical figures, intended to be cut out and glued together into a sort of mannequin. It was Vesalius's wish to have his book printed on the best paper with generous margins, and he offered to pay for the additional cost. He confided in his friend Johannes Gast, that the larger the book, the happier he, Vesalius, would be. Even if Gast were to laugh at such a desire, nothing would delight him more, Vesalius wrote, than to make a great impression. In the August of 1543, Gast told Heinrich Bullinger that the retail price of the fabrica was four florins, four and a half batzen, uh, one florin being 15 batzen, and the epitome, 10 batzen, that is to say, the fabrica cost about six times more than the epitome. 
The total price of the two books roughly tallies with what Operinus later charged in 1547 at five florins and three batson. In 1546, the city council of Basel set the tariff of meals with meat in the city's guest houses at three shillings, uh, one florin being 20 shillings, which suggests that the fabrica and the epitome together were worth about 34 meals with meat at the time. We do not have information on prices of a sufficient number of 16th century printed books to make any meaningful comparison about the prices of the Fabrica as a printed book, though I list here some known prices. A few coloured copies of the Fabrica and the Epitome are known, but I have been unable to find their cost or price. Though perhaps not the most expensive book in the scholarly market, the Fabrica was a relatively expensive book. In 1542, Vesalius's salary from the university was 200 florins a year, so the Fabrica and the Epitome together would have been equivalent to a bit more than a week's pay from the university for him. The title of the book, De Humani Corporis Fabrica Libri Septum, On the Fabric of the Human Body, was an indication of the Galenic lineage of the work. It was the title also given to a tract by a Byzantine author, Theophilus Protospartharius, which was translated by Junio Paolo Grassi and published in 1536. The virtue of Theophilus, according to his 16th century translator, was that he lived after the time of Galen, was a Christian, and wrote a tract which was much shorter and more succinct than Galen's On the Usefulness of the Parts in 17 books. In five books, Theophilus showed how the structure of the human body, the container of the soul, was more divine than other animals. In calling his work the seven books on the fabric of the human body, Vesalius was implicitly aligning his book with this Christianized, redacted, Galenic anatomical work, which Vesalius appears to have read. Perhaps it is in this spirit that we should understand Vesalius's gesture of pointing upwards to heaven, to God, in the frontispiece. There are many ways to interpret this very famous frontispiece, but it is uncontroversial that this was designed as a visual manifesto of Vesalius's own project. Scholars such as Vivian Nutton, Nancy Shiraishi and Andrew Cunningham agree that Vesalius's project was Galenic in inspiration. Traditionally, in a dissection scene exemplified here to your right from Johannes Ketam's Fasciculus Medicinae, the text of Galen was read out by the professor while a barber surgeon cut open the body and the ostensor or demonstrator pointed to the part which was referred to in the text. Vesalius is portrayed at the centre of a theatre, in contrast, a theatre teeming with spectators pointing at a dissected woman's body He's the single person in charge of the dissection. He points to what he sees. Thus, he seeks to understand the body as Galen had enjoined others to do. The skeleton above the dissection table draws attention to Vesalius's emphasis on the Galenic order of describing the human body, beginning with the bones. 
The portrait of the author further represents Vesalius as pursuing a Galenic project by dis dissecting the hand. The hand, um, Galen in fact regarded as the instrument that distinguished humans from animals. According to Vesalius, <coughs> physicians had come to ne neglect the hand over time. Here he's laying bare how the tendon of the first muscle moving the fingers of the hand and to the physicians in the audience it is the flexor digitorum superficialis and that has a division through which an underlying tendon of the second muscle or the flexor digitorum profundus passes. This author portrait echoes a portrait by Jan Stefan Kalka who had been involved in producing Vesalius's earlier work on anatomical tables. Kalkar's portrait, dated 1540, of Melchior von Brauweiler, shows the young German patrician in a pose for fashionable among Italian portraits at the time, with one arm akimbo and the other arm resting on the base of a classical column. It is a pose and composition Kalkar used in other portraits. Uh, such as the portrait of a young man on your left. A classical column in the background was also his standard prop, as it is repeated in the portrait to your right of a bearded gentleman. <coughs> Kalka showed Brauweiler wearing a black brocaded overdress with a belt or cord that tucks in the drape at the back, with sleeves in what looks like vertical strips of black satin. The portrait of Vesalius shows him in a similar overdress with a drape at the back and similar brocaded patterns and separate sleeves and in the background there is a column with an ionic capital. The frontispiece also shows a column whose height when measured is nine times its diameter assuming that you are here seeing exactly half of the column. And this proportion is exactly what was stipulated for Corinthian column by Renaissance authors on architecture, including the writer Sebastiano Serlio. Serlio is one of the several other artists who have been linked to the Fabrica. The historian Andrea Carlino has associated Serlio with this frontispiece, given Serlio's experience in constructing a temporary wooden theatre at the Palazzo Porta Coleoni in Vincenza, perhaps similar to the one shown in the frontispiece of the Fabrica. The architave, architrave depicted in the title page also resembles the one described under the Doric order by Serlio, who explains the significance of the oxen head in the metope as referring to the ancient custom of sacrificing bulls. Martin Kemp suggests, furthermore, that Domenico Campagnola may well have been responsible for the background of the myological figures which included pyramids, obelisks, aqueducts and ruins. These were all artists active in the early 1540s in Venice. Even if we are no longer able to identify for certain which artists were involved, the images of the fabrica can at least be interpreted as deploying the visual language and style popular in Venice in the late 1530s and early 1540s. The art historian Thomas da Costa Kaufmann from Princeton 
has drawn attention to a drawing in red charcoal of some bones now at the Croker Art Museum in Sacramento, America. It shows how the femur and its epiphyses at both ends are detachable. It also shows the pelvic bone with its coccendix into which the head of the femur slots. Then the lower jaw is depicted from two slightly different angles. The bones of the toe and the tarsal are found at the top and a skull is in the foreground. Given that seven of the 11 pieces drawn on the sketch are produced in reverse on the same page in the fabrica, and given the incisions in the drawing, the Costa Kaufman has rightly concluded that this was the original design used for this woodcut. It also indicates that the woodcutters, who are not normally the draftsmen who made the original drawings in this period, were fairly faithful to the originals. As argued by another scholar, Francesco Guerra, one of these woodcutters may well have been Francesco Marcolini, who also printed Serlio's architectural works. Whatever the identities of the craftsmen involved, there is in fact no doubt that the drawings and woodcuts were prepared under the supervision of Vesalius, since he sent the woodblocks already cut to Operinus in Basel. Operinus's will, furthermore, indicates that Vesalius's heirs had some rights over the woodblocks, which suggests that it was Vesalius who paid for the preparation of these woodblocks. Vesalius's book contained a variety of illustrations. The series of muscle figures is arranged in a sequence in order to show layer under layer of muscle, starting with the surface of the human body. Vesalius directed the readers to look at a muscle in not just one figure, but to compare a muscle with its, its depiction in the preceding and succeeding figures in order to grasp what was above and under it. Looking back and forth these pictures thus enabled the reader to grasp the sense of layers and indeed the depth of a body. The continuous relationship of the muscle figures is suggested, furthermore, through the sequential connection of the background landscape, which forms a panorama. Some figures were in fact depicted in a humanly awkward position in order to show parts that would otherwise be invisible from a normal frontal point of view. There are also marginal figures assisting with analogical descriptions, such as here hinges resembling the sutures of the skull. Some of the decorative initials can also be regarded as pictorial illustrations depicting scenes relating to anatomical matters such as here Q showing a dissection of a pig and L showing uh, a theft of a body from the gallows. Six out of the seven books of the Fabrica begin with large ornamental initials and each chapter is headed by a smaller decorative initial. The use of differently sized or coloured decorative initials in order to signal di different levels of text breaks was a well-known convention in medieval illuminated manuscript. manuscripts. What is somewhat unusual is Vesalius's insertion of two initials next to the text in order to explain the instrument glossocomion mentioned by Galen for resetting a dislocated thigh bone.
Although Vesalius said that he did not want to overburden readers with pictures, a large variety of pictorial material was thus included in the fabrica, many of which were placed with great care and their functions explained in detail. It is meant to be blank here. Um, but how did these figures work, if at all, for Vesalius's own project of anatomy? The fabrica was intended to, and indeed does, follow closely the order of Vesalius's public dissections at Bologna and Padua. Vesalius recommended that in private dissections, one should study whatever body one could come by in order to develop skills in dissections and to learn about the differences of bodies and the true nature of diseases. In a public dissection, in contrast, the body should be of a middle-aged man or woman with the most temperate complexion. The problem, of course, was that not all criminals whose bodies Vesalius could dissect were middle-aged or had perfectly temperate complexion. Furthermore, Vesalius felt that the peculiarities of an individual body had to be ignored in a public dissection. And this is what he wrote. I had reckoned that the series of veins occurring very rarely should not be considered by a student of anatomy other than as if now and then a sixth finger on the hand or another, monst uh, another monstrous thing offered itself to be watched. So far, if I have observed these in public dissections, I would pass over them silently in case candidates of this art would believe these to be seen in all bodies. But the more assiduously I have directed this to be done, not only in dissections, but also in pursuing the Historia of the Perfect Man, Historia Absoluti Ominis, the more obstinately have they marvelled at the monstrous things, as I have learnt by experience more than once. Meanwhile, it would be deplorable for these students to have happened on a body for a whole dissection which differed much from the canon of men, unless they had assisted frequently at the, at the dissections of perfect and non-monstrous men, not ignoring the precepts of Galen given to us at the end of the first book of On Anatomical Procedures. Galen's precept in Anatomical Procedures was that students of medicine should dissect as many bodies as possible. I'd like to note three points here. First, the need to ignore very rare or monstrous structures in public dissections. Second, that Vesalius calls his project the Historia of the Perfect Man, Homo Absolutus. Third, the idea of a canon. The association of the body of the perfect man with, can with the canon is significant, as it refers to Polycletus, one of the most renowned sculptors of antiquity. Polycletus was reputed to have written a book called The Canon, in which he explained the principles of symmetry and proportion of the parts of the human body. Furthermore, Polycletus was reputed to have created a human statue which was so perfectly crafted that later artists measured their own skills against it. This too was called the canon. The canon, as the statue of Polycletus, is an idea that Galen frequently used in his work, 
especially on the doctrines of Plato and Hippocrates, recovered in the 16th century and first printed in 1534, nine years before the Fabrica. Galen used the word canon to mean the human body whose parts were perfectly well proportioned in relation to each other and ultimately embodying perfection of every type of balance. Such a body, Galen also stated, was rarely exemplified and could only be grasped through extraordinary dedication, frequent dissection and experience. When Vesalius referred to the statue of Polycletus, he was thus signalling an ideal human body of excellent Galenic warrant. Despite the enthusiasm in the Renaissance to recover classical art, as witnessed by the statuary court of the Belvedere in the Vatican, no statue seems to have been identified as the canon of Polycletus by 1543. By the 1530s, the Belvedere Gardens at the Vatican housed classical statues such as the Leocorn and the Apollo. Among them was a torso, lacking the head, arms and legs from the knee down, which came to be identified as representing the body of Hercules and became well known across Europe through bronzettes, models, written descriptions and sketches. Indeed, it was commonly rumoured that Michelangelo praised this statue as the most perfect in Rome. He used it as a model for figures in the Sistine Chapel, as did Agnolo Bronzino for his portrait of Cosimo de' Medici as Orpheus. In the Fabrica, the torso is depicted as revealing renal and seminal veins. It is reasonable to interpret the torso here as the draftsman's conceit to show off his fashionable antiquarian taste on occasions when the depictions of a full figure was not required. The Belvedere torso was, after all, famous for lacking its head, legs and arms. But I think it is also possible to see it as a body of a classical hero, embodying perfection and therefore rendering its anatomical structure canonical. But how should one go about establishing the canonical structure of the Homo Absolutus? Obviously, as Galen had urged, by frequent dissection. And Vesalius cites the length to which he'd gone to procure human bodies and how many times he'd seen unusual structures. However, he took another factor into account. For example, there is a structure which is now called the Os Vesalianum Carpi, an ossicle just under the base of the little finger in the hands. The tiny bone shown at N is a skeletal aberration found in just over 0.1% of Caucasians. Vesalius is in the highest degree unlikely to have seen this structure more than once in his lifetime. Yet, he decided that this must be an important part of the canonical structure because it fulfilled the function of supporting the little finger. It stops it from slipping down. The examination of purpose, teleology, was the central point of Galen's De Usu Partium on the usefulness of the parts. 
that the perfect and correct form of a part of the body was the one best adapted to execute its functions. Vesalius was typical of an ambitious learned physician of his time in adopting teleology as argument. But he did not simply repeat Galen's telos of each part of the body, rather he offered his own teleological explanations throughout the fabrica, and not just for ossicles as rare as the Os Vesalianum carpi. Teleology was the reason for Vesalius favouring the less common six-piece structure of the Os Sacrum over the five-piece structure. He also ignored a fleshy piece of muscle, palmaris brevis to us, in the hand discovered by Giovanni Battista Canani in 1541. Vesalius remarked, I passed over the muscle in silence, seeing that it was established without purpose, and furthermore, that Galen did not mention it. The parts of the body depicted in the fabrica look the way they do because of Vesalius's commitment to teleological considerations. So, a picture of Vesalius's canonical body contains on the one hand parts that are hardly ever visible in dissections of actual individual bodies, such as the Os Vesalianum carpi. And it also ignores unusual variations or even common but purposeless structures that could well be encountered in the dissection hall, such as the palmaris brevis muscle. It is worth noting then that for all its naturalism, the woodcuts of the fabrica do not guarantee an exact match with a body in the dissection hall. Another way in which Vesalius established the structure of the human body was by comparing it with the anatomy of other animals. The study of an anatomical structure for the sake of understanding human structure is not in itself a new method of investigation. Vesalius's use of anatomic, uh, animal structures become important, however, since as he sought to follow Galen's prescription to the letter by dissecting as many human bodies as possible, he had realised that Galen could not have dissected humans. In Table 5 of the muscle figures, for example, regarding the structure in the neck labelled X, the legend reads, as this area in man is fully portrayed in Table 7, which I've shown below, um, Table 5, we have, with excessive devotion to Galen's teaching, depicted here a muscle which is found in dogs, but not in man, and is regarded by Galen as the third moving the thorax. The whole of it can be seen in the next table, where it is marked gamma. In the next table, table 6, at gamma, Vesalius writes, this part of the chest and neck should have been drawn as in the following table, which is table 7. But I decided it would not be entirely pointless to depict here from a dog the muscle mentioned of Galen that takes its origin marked O from the transverse processes of that cervical vertebra. It is fleshy as far as the fourth rib, but at the point marked P, it becomes, membranous, it becomes a membranous tendon marked Q, and this extends further down to some of the ribs. Later on in the text, Vesalius explains the point of the dog muscles. The third muscle, G, 
and G um, is in fact a superscript in the text which is keyed to um, the internal margin which, is, which directs you to gamma in table 6. The third muscle G occurs only in apes and dogs but I have included it, as I pointed out earlier, lest someone who relies too much on the text of Galen without doing any cutting may talk some nonsense about my having overlooked some muscles, an accusation that I do not deserve. As Vesalius explains, the inclusion of an animal structure was to counter the possible charge that he was somehow negligent. Picturing human anatomy alone with its discrepancy with the Galenic text would expose Vesalius to the charge that he had either not looked at the body carefully enough or that he did not know his Galen well enough. By introducing the structure that matched Galen's description into the image of a human body, Vesalius thus offered a direct point of comparison to his readers. The animal structures are there to show that Galen's description fit animal structures better than human ones and to show, in turn, how valid Vesalius's own description of the human body was. What is being compared here is not animal and human structures per se, but rather the authorities of Galen and Vesalius. For Vesalius's position to prevail, however, the reader in fact has to take on trust Vesalius's point that Galen's muscle of the dog cannot be found in humans. In this sense, this pictorial strategy offers persuasive rhetoric rather than proof to Vesalius's point. This type of figure of the human body containing partial animal structures, strictly speaking, does not depict the canonical body. They are instead a pictorial form of adjudication confirming that Vesalius's description fit better the anatomy of a human than Galen's or any other person who got it wrong. The use of pictures to differentiate competing views of medical authorities in itself is in itself not unique to Vesalius. Berengario Carpi had done precisely that in an earlier work, albeit in a cruder form when he uses pictures to differentiate between true and false positions of the veins in the hand. And here he's actually saying this is the true cause of a particular vein and this is the wrong one. In Vesalius's case, he used the composite animal-human figure to achieve a similar effect. Vesalius's woodcuts thus allowed him to establish canonical structures, incorporate teleology, and compare authorities. The woodcuts were hardly ever precise depictions of the actual individual specimens that were observed. Structures deemed useless were passed over in silence, while rare ossicles became visible. It is important to note that without the text, a novice would have been unable to tell that a particular muscle arrangement embedded in the human figure belonged to an animal and that thus it showed how wrong Galen was. In other words, Vesalius's pictures would not make sense to the reader without the text. Without the text that explained what the reader ought to be seeing in the picture, the precise point of the picture would be lost.
these pictures could not be understood by those who were illiterate or who could not read Latin. Nor did the claims made in the text stand alone. A standard page um, in the Fabrica, without the images, looks like this. It has text in both the external and internal margins. While the external margins indicate the standard summary points and topics in the text, the internal margins point to the tables or letters in a picture elsewhere in the book. And here you can see slightly better um, the internal margins. A superscript alphabet letter in the main text was keyed to the internal margin, which then would send the reader to a part of a picture elsewhere in the book. The purpose of this arrangement, Vesalius said, was so that there would be for the reader a sort of commentary to the text by indicating in which figure the part mentioned may be seen. So it is a kind of pictorial commentary that's being given in the internal margin. But in order to understand this pictorial commentary, the reader had to turn the pages backwards or forwards to the figures elsewhere in the book. According to the historian Nancy Shiraishi, this pictorial commentary would require a conscientious reader to look over to the figures over 100 times in a space of six pages. <coughs> the keys thus linked different parts of the book, guided the turning of the pages back and forth in order to understand the depth and layers of the body, to connect parts of the text with parts of the picture, and to understand Vesalius' view of the human body. It broke with expectation of a linear reading of a book from beginning to end. This is not what you do with um, the Fabrica. So, where can the canonical body be found? It certainly does not exist out there in nature in a particular individual human body that could be dissected in the anatomical theatre. Rather, it is being created in the experience of reading Vesalius's Fabrica, that is, the reading experience of going back and forth between the text and the image. In its design and use of pictorial material, the Fabrica is probably the most complex of 16th century printed books, a result, no doubt, of an un unusual extent of authorial control over pictures, enabled by Vesalius himself <laughs> paying for their preparation. The woodcuts in the Fabrica were indeed remarkable because of how they worked together with the text. Vesalius's book, alas, was not an overnight success. It did not persuade all physicians of the importance of using pictures in their books on human anatomy. It did not dramatically change public dissection practices. Not everybody believed in Vesalius's anatomical discoveries. But one thing that did happen was that woodcuts of the Fabrica were copied almost immediately and recopied relentlessly. 
for the extraordinary case of Thomas Geminus, who copied line by line Vesalius's woodcuts into engraving, I refer you to Professor Donaldson's lecture, which is available on this college's website, and recently um, he has written a paper in the library about this. Here I'd like to add the case of Felix Platter. In his anatomical work published in 1583 on the structure and use of the human body, he explicitly stated that he was copying Vesalius. He had in fact tried to purchase the original woodblocks but found them to be too large. Platter said that he had used the same letters as Vesalius in the figures he had copied from the Fabrica so that a direct comparison could be made with Vesalius's work. This is a point often repeated by post-Vesalian authors to explain how their pictures did or did not differ from the original images in the Fabrica. <coughs> not all borrowing, copying or reuse were acknowledged or done skillfully and hardly any were accompanied by the original arguments by Vesalius or were used in the ways that Vesalius did. Here I'm just showing you three examples, one each from each century um, of um, the copying of Vesalius's, um, well, what I call the gravedigger skeleton, um, but you can immediately recognize them. If you go to welcome images and type in Vesalius, there are actually many, many more copies of this kind, but I thought I'd just choose one for each century. Well, I mean, actually, the last one is very interesting because this, is, this was apparently printed in Constantinople, and I have no further information about this. Um, if anybody can enlighten me, I'll be very grateful. The upshot of all this copying was that Vesalius's anatomical figures became the standard by which all other authors publishing books with anatomical figures had to measure themselves. In a sense, Vesalius's anatomical figures themselves had become canonical. In this, then, Ivins was perhaps right in insisting on the importance of the woodcuts of the Fabrica. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.